welcome back to PeerPod, the podcast where you are the peers and we are your pod. My name is Tom, I'll be your spirit guide this semester as we talk governance, innovation, inclusion, cheating, pride, sustainability and how the crazy year that is 2020 affects student life and culture. We're coming to you today from our ThinkSpace studio above SciTech Library. Before we bring in this week's guests, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Let's get into it. Hi everyone, Tom here. It's lovely to be kicking off another semester with PeerPod. First up, we have a very applicable topic for those of you who are joining us, or for those who haven't been keeping up with policies governing university student relations, the Student Charter 2020. Before we dive in, I'd like to acknowledge that the policy has been guiding relationships since the beginning of the year. So now that the smoke is cleared, while we look forward to what this means for us as students going forward, we can also reflect on how it's settled in. I'm joined today by Associate Professor Peter McCallum, who led the charge on the student charter and chaired the implementation group, as well as Claire Birch, one of our former student representatives. It's great to see you both, even though it's through the murky depths of the Zoom call. Nice to see you, Tom. Hi, Tom. Claire, there are two main sections to the charter, student expectations of the university and university expectations of students. How did these come about? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So one of the early requests of the university when it came about time to redesign the old student code of conduct was to introduce a new collegial tone and ensure that the code of conduct for students was or encouraged uh, a relationship between students and the university uh, in a new kind of way. So one of the recommendations that the initial student team put together um, was to enshrine student rights uh, as well as student responsibilities within the student code of conduct with the understanding that our students are generally quite excellent and the leaders of tomorrow. So that's where that student expectations of the university comes into it. And as a response to the student expectations of the university, uh, the university may have expectations of the students. Understandably. So, Peter, Claire mentioned the student code of conduct. What were the main issues that the university and you saw with that document guiding our relationships? And how are we taking steps in the right direction? Well, the former code of conduct was quite an old document anyway. We're not absolutely sure when the current version was first approved, but it was certainly before, uh, at or before 2005. The problem with the old code of conduct were, well, I think I can summarise them in two ways. It was all about what students do and the two clauses started out with all students must, and then a long series of dot points. So that was under personal conduct, and then another series under academic conduct, which said all students must, including uh, read their emails and things like this. So it was very much a directive document, and it didn't say anything about what the university must do. And we felt we really wanted to have a document that expressed the concept that. We're in an intellectual community. It's in all our interests for that community to thrive and to create an environment where we can all flourish. And that's not just a one-way uh, thing. It involves the university and the students having a sense of mutual obligation to one another and a sense of mutual responsibility for making that 
community a healthy one and one that is safe uh, and free and supportive for everybody. So that I think was the main thing we tried to achieve. Um, as Claire said, it was supposed to have a, a reciprocal quality about it. And it was supposed to talk about how people will create uh, a community that makes us all safe and more than just safe, able to really reach our potential. If I can add to that, um, the idea is, I suppose, that the best university learning environment is one that is created equally by students as much as the university governance. Students know best what they need. And in addition to that, it's really only fair if the university has expectations of students that students may have expectations of the university as well, part of a collegial and constantly evolving and growing environment. Two-way street. Exactly. On that, how many players were involved in the discussions? They don't, I'm sure they were all called, uh, all the students. <laughs> <laughs> but how many student representatives did we have in the room when decisions were So on the initial advisory team, there were four of us. So there was a representative from the SLC, from Supra, from the USU, and then me from the academic board. And following that, though, all student representatives who were, who were on the academic board, of which there are, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Peter, about 30. The University of Sydney has one of the largest student representative proportions on its academic board, which is um, quite a strength, I think. And then after that, in the student charter working group, I think we had about five or seven. So lots also, of student input throughout. Yeah. yeah. I'd also mentioned we did a, a kind of virtual um, seminar type uh, approach where uh, we, we got a group who run um, essentially an online focus group, uh, monitor online focus group, and we got a lot of valuable information from students that way too. And there were several hundred, I can't remember the exact figure, who participated in that as well. Oh, okay, so very collaborative process. So given that, so um, Peter, when are we as students first going to come into contact with this document? Is it something that I'm going to be handed on my first day in a pile of paper and asked to read? Or will there be more levels? Well, uh, these days, of course, uh, people don't hand around paper. Uh, it's <laughs> online, and that's, uh, we're all familiar. And when students enrol, yes, they are uh, asked to read it and indicate that they've read it. It's not a long document, but that kind of tokenistic signing off that you've read something, I don't think is the best way to get engagement. Uh, so we do want to have uh, induction activities which encourage students to think about the principles underlying it. Uh, and the, there's a range of material. I must pay great tribute to the SRC for putting together some terrific material about the student charter and really synthesising it down uh, to things that would be meaningful for students, and that's been a great help. Mm -hmm. And in addition, individual faculties will do that as well. Yeah, so we're talking initial tutorials in different subjects, running programs, looking at how the student charter will inf impact students on a day-to-day -day kind of basis. Well, yeah. That's so yeah, that's up to the student. Claire, you talk about it. Yeah. I was going to say, um, sure, I think a step before that is um, actually at, at Welcome Week. Uh, yeah. and various welcome and orientation activities. So I know that the USU has ingrained it in their um, club and society training. So all clubs and societies have various elements of the student charter actually ingrained into their behavior and goals at Welcome Week. University of Sydney Chemistry Society had that. We made it quite a focus. I would say that that's probably the most 
I, I would say that's the first one and probably the place where it's most applicable as well because the charter is really focused on interpersonal um, relationships and uh, behaviour and the best way that one can hold oneself in those kinds of situations. And I think Was there another one, Peter? Yeah, and no, I think the clubs and societies are a really important thing because they are uh, an essential way in which students can become engaged. And our, our campus is terrific from the point of view of the opportunities it gets, but we, we're all aware that sometimes the very lively student life that Sydney University has can almost be uh, acting as a bit of a barrier for certain students, maybe for cultural reasons, maybe out of personal shyness, or maybe out, uh, their own circumstances are such that they don't have time to stay behind in the evenings or something like that. And uh, so we really want to make sure that the societies are inclusive uh, and not uh, a bit cliquey, as uh, one group suggested they can be. Um, and oh, I would never say that, Peter. <laughs> no, well, it, that, that actually came out from a student survey we did. They, uh, the, the people who were involved in them thought they were terrific, but others felt a bit intimidated. They thought um, this is for a certain group of people and I'm not of that group. So because we have such a, a wonderful, diverse community, we need to find ways of breaking down those um, unintended barriers that we can all put up. So I think uh, the clubs and societies have been really crucial in this because that's how students are going to feel engaged, have people to talk to, probably set up informal support networks and hopefully also have a lot of fun. So we're moving away from a disciplinary document into more of a framework where we are encouraging. Yeah, I'd like to get back to talking about some of the things that we mentioned earlier about the different social spaces that we have in the university and how the charter is aiming to preserve those even though they are changing with they're changing with the needs of our growing diversity at the university so i guess one thing you might look at is the very diverse religions we have in the university at the moment and we obviously support the notion of religious freedom absolutely it's very crucial and that of course includes the right not to belong to any particular religion which many people don't we were talking previously about the idea of um an increasingly diverse student body um yep. and dealing with the i guess the needs and wants of that student body mm. i do think that that there is something to be said for the upholding of um academic freedom and freedom of speech um, and demanding excellence in interpersonal relationships um, and academic excellence uh, in this student charter because our students exist and I exist in a continuously evolving and progressing society or societies because we have indeed such a diverse student body. Um, the nature of this document, the nature of this new policy is to lift up the student voice to actually engage with the university um, and ensure that as society evolves, students are able to direct the university to evolve in as um, in, in similar ways and to progress in similar ways um, and to ensure that, that our university as an institution doesn't end up uh, stagnated or appearing to have, as Peter alluded to, sort of old world values. Um, and that in a really meaningful way, students are prepared to exist in the society that they'll see themselves graduating into and, and in 10 years' time. Equipped with um, the skills to, yeah, equipped to the skills, well, with the skills to 
present their opinions and listen to exactly and realize how to overcome those issues that they come up against um exactly the idea is that we sorry we uphold not only well, the, the charter expects that students uphold not only their own academic excellence um yeah. as Sydney uni has come to expect but also their own personal excellence um not only in that it uh actually not only encourages but really requires students to engage with their academic freedom and freedom of speech but also um, that it requires that they engage with other students and that they engage with their own safety and their well-being mm. in a really meaningful progressive way. Yeah. And, and the university has also a set of, as well as the charter, has a set of graduate qualities and that's clear mm. to one of them is cultural competence. Uh, about intercultural communication. One of them is about interdisciplinary effectiveness and people being able to work with people outside their professional area. So that uh, a mathematician might, for example, need to work with someone who's been involved in healthcare on a particular problem or something like that. So all of the values that we try and develop are there because we feel they're essential for functioning in this modern, complex, and often quite challenging world. In terms of expectations that the that students have of the university, I feel like right now in our current climate, this has never been such a key concern for students. Students are no longer in the classroom communicating face-to-face -face with their lecturers and their tutors and we're transitioning to online learning. How has the charter allowed and facilitated the transition that we're seeing the university go through right now? Because some students who are starting this semester, and just so you guys know, we're gonna be um, releasing this first, first week in, um, will, may not find themselves on campus. Um, and we potentially will be continuing online learning. How, yeah, so I guess I ask again, how do you guys see the student charter as facilitating so, an environment where we can do that? <laughs> um, I would point to two things, and I, I know that I think Peter can talk to the earlier transition to online learning and the way that the charter played a role in that. Um, mm. But I would point to two things. The first is that um, even as we move online um, uh, and move much of our learning online and as, a, um, as a, an academic tutor um, in the university, I can say that that transition hasn't been the easiest. Um, yeah. Transitioning things like lab skills to online learning hasn't been very easy, but we can still yes. expect that we have, uh, as students, we can expect that the university will continue to provide an excellent educational experience and will continue to um, maintain the highest of academic standards um, and make it still a very worthwhile learning experience. And I think maybe more importantly in this time, um, in terms of mental health um, and social wellbeing, uh, there is a very strong focus within the charter and the students' expectations of the university that um, students, there's, there's a real focus on interpersonal relationships. Um, and uh, as 
students find new ways to engage with each other and to engage with societies and to build a sense of identity within a university community, um, the charter will see, um, I suppose, should, should direct that kind of engagement. Um, but uh, I think Peter probably has some more concrete examples that he could give. Well, uh, yes, thanks, Claire. And I agree with everything you've said. And certainly quite late in the stage of development, uh, we were sitting around and we thought we actually should say something about the university's obligation for uh, student and staff safety. And so we inserted as the very first clause that the students can expect the university to put the safety of all students and staff of its highest priority. And of course, no sooner had the charter been launched that that became extremely topical. We also included things like a welcome student participation. And that was just so crucial in navigating our way through this because we were thrown in this after semester had started. We needed to suddenly put everything online, courses, assessment, everything. And as Claire said, talk to students, many of whom had never been to Sydney. Uh, and how are we going to do this? So the first thing we had to do was set up good ways of communicating with the students. And I'm very glad to say our student leaders had excellent channels. So we met with them every week, uh, really just for an informal stand-up type discussion of what are the issues on your mind? Have things come up that we're not aware of? And almost every week there was something extremely important that had come up that we as staff weren't aware of. And equally, we were able to communicate some of the university thinking back to students. So that was very valuable. Uh, as Claire said, I think maintaining high academic standards was always an interesting challenge. If we'd wanted to put everything online, normally we might have made it about a two-year project and it became a two-week project. Um, so uh, keeping high academic standards was very much at the forefront. Um, and there's one other one that I'd mention, and that is that with using online examining, uh, some students very legitimately expressed privacy concerns. Uh, it happened with Zoom as well. And um, of course, one of the things that the charter obliges the university to do is to protect the personal information of all students. And uh, we did that. We uh, interrogated very much the partner who was doing this and I think got some good situations and where we weren't able to reassure students, we set up other avenues where possible for students to take exams on campus. Of course, if you were offshore, that was not feasible, but um, we did take that seriously because it's a very important thing that students feel safe and they feel their information is safe. Maybe, Claire, one for you. How did your background, personal, academic, guide you into, or how did those experiences come to the fore in your contributions to the student charter? That's a really good question. For the record, so I'm a, um, I was a science student. Um, I just finished up my honours. My personal experience has been as much in STEM as it has been in education. So I started out studying teaching, I changed. I, I mean, kept up tutoring as a lot of, as students do, but um, I taught a couple of classes. I uh, was a um, teacher's aide and a sort of a learning support coach for students with um, specific learning disabilities. Like my my university experience, in spite of not formally studying education anymore, has been centered around um, a personal philosophy that prioritizes education. So coming into 
the opportunity to um, advise on the student charter. Um, that was really at the forefront. My understanding of um, education is that it is one of the greatest tools for social mobility, um, as it has been for me, uh, and that um, there are many, many um, unseen and unspoken uh, opportunities and setbacks within our current educational system. Sort of a vague way to put it. My priority when I came in was make sure that the student then code of conduct, and we recommended that it was renamed to a charter, um, have student academic excellence and personal excellence and also well-being and protection at its forefront. So ensuring that there was a really strong vein of equity throughout, and there was a really strong vein of fairness throughout, and that there was a really strong sense of independence and student involvement in their own education and flexibility and dialogue was sort of my priority. So um, when we all agreed to put forward this idea of enshrining student rights um, at the time, which has been um, expressed as student expectations, um, that was really where we were coming from. Peter, the safeness, or safety and wellness that Claire's mentioned, does that just encompass students while we're on campus or does it extend? Especially right now, now that we're living through almost satellite kind of campus into everyone's homes. Like, how are we going about managing everyone's wellness in particular? Well, I think uh, a good deal of the uh, challenge comes from looking after people's uh, mental well-being. Uh, in some ways, we use the very blunt instrument for their physical well-being of simply closing the campus, which works. <laughs> has so far <laughs> all sorts of other uh, consequences as well and um, that's where keeping up the sense of connectedness and the sense of uh, students feeling they have a voice that will be heard is so important because feeling alienated disempowered and unable to raise your concerns is I think for anybody a highly stressful situation and one that is likely to have mental health consequences for almost everybody. Uh, so I, I do think keeping up that connectedness is a crucial thing. And behind that needs to also then go some follow-up support uh, when we identify problems. And they can be sometimes small things, but sometimes quite major things. And we need to find ways of supporting students remotely while we're working through this. And the best way for students to reach out if they are having any problems would be through their student representatives? Yeah, well, I'd like to hear Claire's perspective on this because I think um, I might have a view, but she knows what it's like. <laughs> I, I suppose it depends on um, what kind of isolation and what issues are happening and also what students are most comfortable with. Um, so... Um, there's sort of a tiered approach to it, right? If you're having um, a personal sense of isolation or you're concerned about your mental health or um, you're just going through a really difficult time, you can reach out to counseling and psychological services at the university. So that's CAPS. Um, I'm sure they've had a lot on their plate recently, but um, they can always fit people in. Um, the psychologists at CAPS are um, professional counselors. They're not um, just sort of random from nowhere. 
I can't say enough though that um, the if students feel particularly comfortable uh, with academics or with friends or with mentors of some sort, then reaching out to those closest to you first of all is, is a really um, strong step. Go with what's comfortable. Um, it's a it's a very strange time for everyone. Uh, more formally though, uh, if you have concerns about something happening in a unit of study uh, and you don't want to go to a unit of study coordinator, um, or if you're you have something that's going on within um, your school or your faculty, um, you can reach out to student representatives. So in the Faculty of Science in each of the schools, we have representatives for staff student liaison committees. I'm not quite sure what they have um, in art and law and the con or the others, um, but I assume there's a similar structure. Uh, those committees meet uh, two or three times a semester um, to discuss issues that are impacting entire cohorts. Uh, and I can guarantee that if you're having an issue with something, uh, probably other people are as well. The only way that things change are if students speak up about them. The university can't be on top of absolutely everyone's experience, so you need to vocalize it. Um, beyond that, there are more student representatives at the faculty level um, who engage in things to do with curriculum uh, and student life more generally um, and so you can talk to those. I know that we've increased the number of those in the Faculty of Science just this year uh, and we've also tried to increase the links that students have to them. Uh, so talking to your Faculty of Science representatives uh, is a good way to get in touch with what's going on in the faculty or if you have concerns about the curriculum or um, the way that degrees are structured or things like that. Um, so for example, students uh, this is actually at the higher level, at the academic board level, which is just above that, um, students express concerns about uh, the number of credit points that they were taking for their OLEs um, and the L students in particular having to fit those into their degrees uh, and those were taken into serious consideration and the degree structure um, was changed. The point being that if you are feeling isolated or if you have concerns about structures or um, teaching or curriculum, um, going to your student representatives and starting to engage with some sort of discourse, starting a conversation about it um, is the only way that it's going to be changed. But now, like, as we've been discussing, the student charter puts students on par with the university to build the community that we want to have going forward. Peter mentioned a little earlier on that one of the focuses of the charter was to engage students at Welcome Week or whatever who wouldn't normally engage because of personal shyness or cultural differences and to ensure that the dialogue and the yeah, interpersonal relationships are, are open and welcoming and respectful. With respect then to students engaging with the structure of the university and the way that things are taught, it can sometimes seem, especially if you're not particularly involved or you're not involved with research, you're not friendly with the academics or whatever, yes. that the only way to do that is to do so sort of loudly and proudly with a megaphone on Eastern Avenue. That's not necessarily true. But if students are less comfortable with that and still have concerns or feel that they have, that they represent a particular kind of student and they don't feel that that is being, that they are being heard or considered, <laughs> the university actually does have these structures and really welcomes student input and dialogue and I would I, I can't stress this enough like is a really useful and often quite impactful way to have 
have a real influence on the universities, but doesn't require you to be, I guess, loud and proud or particularly involved in student politics. I'm really glad you picked that up, Claire, because Sydney University, I think, rightly has a proud tradition of being involved in protest. And the one that I think we all feel rather good about are the Freedom Rides, which were initiated by mm. John Perkins, uh, which actually was in real social change in the way uh, awareness of discrimination and racism against uh, Indigenous people in, in various areas of New South Wales. And, and that kind of activity is very inspiring, but there, as, as you've also mentioned, there will be people among our student body who maybe come from a, a country which doesn't have a tradition of political protest. They might even come from a country where it's actively repressed and they may not at all feel comfortable about expressing their views in that way because they're worried about it, doesn't feel like them, or they might even be uh, feeling that um, it would be noticed in their home country. So we've got to have a diversity of mechanisms for getting in touch with students and hearing their voice, allowing them to influence the culture and, and so we can improve it so that it works for everybody, not just, as you say, the ones who love going on demos and uh, getting... Uh, Horse. Something to be very proud of, and I'm very proud to have been part of a university with such a strong protest culture. Um, it has taught me a lot and it has greatly informed my personal political views. It really is this idea that if you want things to change, if you have concerns, if you have complaints, nothing is going to change unless you as a student actually do something to speak up. Well, I'd just like to say that I think the student charter mm -hmm. for me. I've been involved in lots of university policies, and this is one that I'm probably most proud of uh, because it does seem to me to have been something that the students themselves generated and were able to make it happen. But we've always got to remember that it's only one component. The charter itself won't guarantee the culture we want. My, my father was a political scientist, and he always used to point out to me that, well, Russia has a Bill of Rights and Australia doesn't, uh, where do you think rights are more respected? So the document itself is not going to be the full answer. Um, it's going to assist. So I would say to students, use it. Uh, hold the university to account. Hold your fellow students to account and use it to create the sort of culture that you want and the sort of culture that will enable you to thrive and will enable knowledge and your discipline to thrive as well because it, it's how we use these documents that I think is really important. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. I think that I'm also really happy with how it came out. I'm very happy with the wording and with the focus. I'm proud of the way that I think it has the potential to really empower students, not only in their activism and in their um, engagement with their own academic freedom, but also empowers them to attain excellence in whatever field that they, they choose to pursue. I'm really, I think it's an empowering document, but a document is only as empowering as the students who read it and the actions that they take as a result of it. So while it is aspirational and it is encouraging, it's only going to um, have that power if students choose to engage in that way with it and with themselves. Really enjoyed chatting with you guys and learning about a little bit more about the theory behind where the student charter came from. From what we've said today, I'm taking away that the uni is caring about our emotional and physical well-being and wants us to reach our best through this 
document that it wants us to live and embody, which also provides us a roadmap for navigating our community and where we can potentially take it in the future. Can I just add, Tom, the university and other students also care about academic values and about pursuit of truth and creation of knowledge. That, in a way, is what we're trying to do, as well as develop as people and as scholars, but to develop knowledge for the use of society as well. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on the academic freedom that we spoke about earlier? Sure. Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between freedom of speech and academic freedom. As we, I think, discussed it in in earlier conversations, academic freedom is the obligation to pursue truth, whereas freedom of speech is the right to say things. And with that freedom of speech comes certain obligations. It can be a right to say something which is actually pretty wrong-headed or even uh, possibly ill-informed, but you still have the right to say it. Uh, And other people have the right to tell you uh, it's wrong. Uh, But But academic freedom is something different. That's about the obligation to pursue the truth, even if it doesn't agree with what you're saying. And as I I think I might have mentioned earlier, let's say I'm doing research on climate change and I might have a certain view and I might find that what I'm discovering is not actually supporting my view. Well, the obligation is to the truth, it's to the data, and then you need to adjust your views uh, to match that. Uh, So academic freedom is an obligation. Uh, Freedom of speech is a right. And there we are. End of another episode. Thanks for joining us. Hope you learned something. I certainly did. Before we go, I'd like to thank the PeerPod team for bringing it all together once again. So until next week, look after yourselves. Subscribe to PeerPod on either iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud so we can keep in touch and you can keep up to date with the newest episodes. If there is any topic you would like us to tackle, you can write us at peerpod.pla at sydney.edu.au. Remember, you can find your peer learning advisors in their red T-shirts at Thinkspace, The Quarter, Dentistry, Bosch Commons, Camden Commons and Westmead. Peerpod is recorded and produced by the library's peer learning advisors in the Thinkspace One Button Recording Studio on Gadigal Land. 